Good night, Winchester. It is Monday, October 3rd. It's about 11 DMB, 41 PM. I know that was lame. I am your host, Lance Gunner Wines, and this is yet another humble episode of Late Nights with Lance, Winchester's favorite and only late night talk show. And it's good to be back. Uh, I keep making these returns somehow. Uh, I keep returning to the mic after these extended breaks. This is the return of the Mac. Hopefully, I'm back for good for a while. Um, and this episode should be a treat uh, to everyone. This should honestly be a, a pretty enjoyable episode. Now, this episode here is not the beach special. It's not a DMB saga episode. It's not the Barty it's not anything like that. It's not it, It's not a lot of things, so let me tell you what it is. This episode is an unexpected sequel to an unexpected episode um, that I, I think I need to tell to sort of segue into what is going on in my life, right? So I have these stories that I've been sitting on for months now that I have all the evidence, the photo evidence. I have everything ready to do these deep dives into these stories that took place in spring and early summer of this year. But obviously, I've had a lot of, you know, I took a long mental health break, I guess. Um, my whole life is pretty much a mental health break at this point. And then I've had all this other crazy bullshit happen to me to the point where, at first, I didn't have any content to talk about. Then I had all the content in the world. I had too much content to talk about. And then I couldn't because I had all these mental blocks, these mental health issues going on. And then I released some content, tried to get into the swing of things again, got back into another mental block, and then I've had more shit happen. But this stuff is, it's not that it's more or less important than the beach story or the DMB saga. I certainly would not say that. Um, but it's more present. It's more pressing. Uh, and it's, it is going to be a better segue, I guess, into my mental emotional state for when I go and look at those longer narrative stories through the lens of who I am today, months removed from those stories, right? So with that being said, I do want to update some people on where the hell I've been, where the hell I am, sort of what's what's going on in the world of Lance Gunner. And the biggest break huh, is that I shattered my foot. I absolutely obliterated my foot. And the story, now this isn't a beach episode, this isn't going to be that episode, this is more of a, hopefully a short one, I say this is going to be short, but the other one ended up being like two hours and 40 minutes, so I don't know how short this is going to be. I'm not very good with length, right, that's what she said, um, but basically I went to the Outer Banks, it was a family vacation, um, so the beach trip was organized, planned and organized and paid for provided by the Nichols family. It was my Aunt Sandy and Uncle Louie, and then my cousin Joshua and his wife Jessica. Of course, my cousin Justin and his wife Brooke and their two children were also supposed to join us, but unfortunately, their youngest child, uh, his name is Mitchell, he came up with COVID. I think it was his second time getting COVID. He's he's like a toddler, right? Um so because the children were sick, they were under the weather, they didn't want to travel with them, expose us, but also, you know, it, it, it's exhausting uh, to travel as a child. So Justin and Brooke and their family didn't show up. Uh, so it was basically Sandy, Louie, Josh, and Jessica. 
And then myself and Bob uh, were invited to join them. And not to get into too much detail, but the very first night of the week, the very first night of the vacation, um, anyone familiar with the Outer Banks knows that typically the houses that you rent, uh, you rent typically weekly, right? It's a, it's Saturday to Saturday or Friday to Friday. They're typically three stories, right? And the third story is usually the master suite, the living area, the dining area, and the kitchen. And then the second floor is usually all of the other bedrooms, right? Some of them have queens, some of them have twins, some of them have whatever. And then the bottom floor, the ground floor, is usually, um, well, sometimes there might not be a ground floor. There might just be an open parking area enclosed parking or there might be like a game room a common area you know sort of like a mud room where you can come in when you're sandy and a little bit wet right um which that should be the title of my next book sandy and a little bit wet but then again my aunt's name is sandy so probably not um that was a terrible joke but you know it's good to be back on the mic anyway so i was sleeping on the second floor right the middle floor of the house and I went upstairs to take my antidepressants, right? My my nightly pill roster, whatever you want to call it, my nightly pill routine, um, my antidepressants and everything, take my nightly medication and to get a snack, right? A midnight snack, if you will. So I go upstairs, take the pills or whatever, uh, get something to drink, get a snack. And then, of course, every, you know, floors are hardwood, the steps are hardwood, everything. And I fall down the stairs. Right from the third floor to the second floor, fall down the stairs. Um, I got a few steps in and then just you know just ate it. And I rolled. I didn't fall like on my back or on my stomach or anything like that. I roll. I fell into the wall um, because I'm a I'm a big boy. Right, I'm not a kid that just tumbles. Right, children for some reason just tumble whenever they do something, um, which may be a, a good uh, defense. Uh, mechanism, right? A good physical defense uh, to just roll, to tuck and roll, if you will. But I did not do that because I'm an adult and I like to think that I have faculties and that my mind would protect me. Um, anyway, so I fall and just eat it into this wall, right? Like like shoulder right into the wall. And, you know, I I thought I went through it. Honestly, I thought that when I pulled out, um, they were going to pull me out of that motherfucker. No, I thought... <laughs> I thought that when I pulled off the wall that there was going to be like a big den or a big hole or a big crack or something in the wall or like photos would fall off the wall. Um, but luckily, realistically, I just slammed into it and anything I thought I heard cracking was my own body, right? Because my shoulder, I injured my shoulder. Uh, obviously, I didn't break my shoulder. That would be like a serious fall. Um, not that this wasn't super serious, but I injured my shoulder uh, to the point where I have like a frozen shoulder at some uh, rotation, right? Some degrees of rotation. And I rolled, when I fell into the wall, I sort of rolled over on my right foot when I landed and all my weight went down on my right foot as it was uh, perpendicular with the ground. And all my weight just from falling just completely shattered my foot. Because uh, I'm a heavy guy, right? I'm an adult male. I'm pretty large. Uh, large and in charge, if you will. And all of my weight coming down on my foot from that fall down those stairs just obliterated my foot and I heard it break and I knew that it was broke. Right. So I text my buddy Hunter, who is a doctor, right? Dr. Cutlip uh, down in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And I was like, Hunter, I think I broke my foot. And he was like, what makes you say that? I told him what happened, showed him a picture of my foot where, where it hurt. Um, and he was like, well, you know, you would know if it was broken, 
because you wouldn't be able to walk on it or it would be bruised or it would, you know, this, that, and the other. I told him, I was like, listen, uh, mama ain't raised no bitch, right? Like there is no, I cannot imagine any physical injury, any physical deformity, any physical abnormality that would prevent me from walking. It may be difficult. It may be painful. It may be uh, the exact opposite of what I want or should do, but I'm going to get somewhere, right? I can't imagine. And this is like that that feeling of invincibility, I think, that we feel um, in our minds, right? Where there's nothing that would prevent me from walking if I absolutely needed to mobilize myself. If I needed to move myself, transport myself somewhere, even if it's just to get to a vehicle to drive somewhere or just to get somewhere where I can lean on something, I can't imagine any physical, like my foot could have been bitten off by a shark. I'm still going to hobble to the car to get to the emergency room, right? Like I, I can't imagine any situation where no matter how painful it is, I know that it needs to be done. So I'm just going to do it. And that's sort of my view on pain is it may be painful. It may hurt, but like it needs to be done. And you just, I've been raised that, you know, something needs to be done. You just do it no matter how much you don't want to, or no matter how much you can't, you just do it. You don't quit. And I told him, I was like, there's nothing in this world. I cannot imagine anything happening to my foot or my legs where I wouldn't walk. Um, That's just the willpower in me, right? The green lantern's light, if you will. And he said, well, if you can walk on it um, and it doesn't, you know, it's not bruised, it's not super swollen, it's probably not broken, right? He was like, maybe you you strained something or twisted something, but it's probably not broken. I was like, okay, like, you know, that's certainly, like, you can ask me these questions, but like, you know, you don't understand my pain tolerance. Uh, So whatever, I sleep, I try to elevate it a little bit, I sleep on it. Somehow I fall asleep, I don't know how my mind neglects the pain. But in the morning when I wake up, it is, it's very obvious to me that this is broken, whether anyone wants to uh, agree with me or admit it or not. It's very clear to me that this foot is broken. It wasn't super swollen. It was swollen. The pain was persistent, and it was just as, if not more painful than when I had actually broken it. Um, Foot didn't look too bad, but it was just, it was wild. So I turn, I try to get off the bed. And as soon as I try to put weight on it, I'm like, oof, like, this is probably what Hunter means when he said, like, you wouldn't be able to walk on it. Now, am I able to walk on it? Yes. Technically, yes. And and that's the lawyer in me, I think, too, is technically I'm able to walk on it. It may be the most painful sensation that I've ever experienced in my life. Uh, It may do more more harm than good. It may cause more damage to the injury. uh, And it may be the worst physical experience of my life but yeah physically i can walk on it i can right like in a theoretical world i can use it as a normal foot and put one foot in front of the other and walk maybe i shouldn't and maybe i i physically don't want to um but if i was being chased by a killer yeah i'd make it work um you know if michael myers was chasing after me i'd make it work and i got back into bed and i was like i don't think i have the I didn't have the energy, the ability to motorize myself, to mobilize myself, to get up the stairs that I had fallen down the night before to tell everyone, like, I need to go to a doctor. I need to see a medical professional about this injury. So it takes me about an hour and a half, maybe two hours to actually muster the might, muster the strength uh, to accept the pain, right? This is 
I hadn't yet built a tolerance to that level of pain because I had never felt that amount of physical pain before in my life. Um, so it took me a while in bed to motivate myself like the David Goggins, like I'm about to run a hundred miles in a, in a day. Like I had to motivate myself with that Marine mindset of like, Hey, no matter how much it hurts, you got to do it. Right. It's got to be done. And I did it. Right. And this is, I was like, listen, he was like, well, you know, if you're walking, it's probably not broken. He kept, you know, that's what they are trained to say. If you're walking, it's probably not broken. I'm like, listen, like I said before, there's nothing in this world that would prevent me from using this foot. I'm just telling you that it is the most painful experience of my entire life. And this is probably what you mean, but because I'm super literal, uh, because of my legal mind, this is just how it's coming out to me. Like, you know, there's no scenario in this world where I can't walk, and you're saying that there's no scenario where if you can walk, it's broken. And those truths just don't go together in my mind. But anyway, I, I make my way upstairs, and I inform them. I'm like, hey, well, I texted Sandy first, and I was like, hey, is anyone sober? Because I'm going to need someone to drive me to this emergency room or to this urgent care. And um, I make my way upstairs, and of course, Bob and Louie are upstairs. And I'm like, hey, can one of you drive me to the urgent care? I am with with some legal certainty positive that I broke my foot. And they were like, what happened? And, you know, of course, I think I know that Sandy and them, Sandy and Josh and Jessica had been drinking. Louie had probably had a beer or two. It was by the time I got up out of bed, it was almost the afternoon. Um, and I was like, listen, like I fell down these stairs last night, like right in front of everyone, even though everyone was asleep. And somehow my 350 pound body slamming into a wall at full force enough to shatter this foot did not make enough noise to wake up all of these drunk people. Right. Like I fell down the stairs next to the master suite into the hallway where everyone else was sleeping. And somehow my huge body slamming into a wall was not loud enough to wake these people. Couldn't even wake the dead, apparently. Um, of course I didn't scream because like I said, mama ain't raised no bitch. Right. Um, and I told them what happened and they were like, Oh my God, like, how did we not know? Like, what if you had actually fallen, uh, and like land, like broken your leg or like landed on the ground and like, couldn't get up off your back or off your stomach because you had broken your leg or something. And I was like, listen, I really don't want to think about how you guys neglected me in this injury. I don't want to think about the torts that have occurred in this, uh, in this whole, you know, operation. I don't want to think about the torts that have happened here. Um, but I was like, you know, regardless of the negligence of the homeowner, the maintenance of the house and the people in the house, I still have a broken foot and I need to get some sort of medical attention. Bob was like, sure, I'll drive you anyway. So long story short, I'm not going to get into the whole business. Um, I told the, the doctor said the same thing that Hunter said. They're like, listen, you're walking on it. You're walking down to the x-ray room down the hallway, probably not broken. And then lo and behold, just, you know, huge break in, uh, I get, what is it? The fifth metatarsal of my foot, just huge break. And it's, you know, pretty, you know, pretty serious. And, um, I stay at the beach. I have a boot anyway. So that's pretty much the update is in the last two weeks, I guess, almost at this point, um, I've been dealing with this broken foot, which has been very debilitating to the point where I cannot imagine having a serious, um, you know, serious issue or condition related to motor function. I, I can't imagine someone being stuck, you know, bedridden for, for 
weeks, months, years at a time, I would lose my mind because, you know, I was stuck in the house for like a week uh, with his broken foot, unable to do anything. And I had already lost a portion of my mind um, just going crazy. I can't imagine people that have like serious conditions that have to spend extended periods of time in bed. Um, and I also can't imagine like, you know, I know Alex Pooner's listening and I, I can't imagine having some sort of medical um, condition that would that would do anything like that to your your motor functions, to your ability to to mobilize yourself. Uh, it takes a lot of strength and a lot of courage uh, to deal with that for your entire life. So that's pretty much where I am at the moment. Uh, and I'm going to transition into uh, what this story is about, right? What this episode is about. So uh, the other night, which, like I said, it's Monday, October 3rd. Um, I guess it, I'm trying to think. This was last night, uh, Sunday. This was Sunday, October 2nd. Uh, I'm chilling at home. Right, doing nothing, watching football, the usual Sunday. Uh, even if I didn't have a broken foot, I'd still be sitting at home uh, watching football, right? Uh, trying to compete in this fantasy football league with Hunter and, and Zach and all of them. And <laughs> my buddy Nick, who, if you've listened to the previous episode, right, the most recent episode, you know who I'm talking about, my friend Nick Franks uh, from high school. He messaged me on Facebook Messenger and was like, hey, what are you doing right now? Uh, well, I just posted a, a birthday post to Elaine, to Elaine Prelly. Uh, so shout out to EP. I love you dearly. Happy, happy birthday. I know I wish you a happy birthday on your birthday, but for this episode to be cemented in history, happy birthday, Elaine. I love you dearly. Uh, thank you for being a friend, right? Thank you for being a friend, as we always say. But I posted a birthday post uh, on social media to Elaine, and then Nick had commented on it. Uh, and then he messaged me privately. He was like, Hey, what are you doing right now? I was like, literally nothing. And he was like, well, let's, we should get together. He was like, I'm in Winchester. Like, let's meet up. I was like, yeah, man, what do you have in mind? And he was like, well, I'm at Buffalo Wild Wings. Yada, yada, yada. And I was like, you know what? Okay. Because there was, uh, an extended periods of time between each response to the point where here's the thing. <laughs> Obviously this is going to be a tangent real quick. Cause all of my all of these episodes are 30-minute stories with two hours of tangents, right? And that's what makes the stories great. Uh, that's what makes it a Lance episode. And I've dealt with people like this before, right? I've been to college, uh, and I've met women. Uh, so I know what it's like to have friends, have people in your life that you're communicating with where you're trying to make a plan, but you're responding within seconds, and they're responding, you know, within... 10, 20, 30 minutes. And it's like, Hey, I'm trying to make a plan. So I'm responding immediately to the point where you should still have your phone in your hand, looking at our text conversation, our text chain, because I'm responding back quickly enough that you're going to see it because you're still looking at it. Right? Like, do you send a text and then just immediately leave the app super quick? Cause you don't want to see what people are saying. And like, you know, if you're talking to a girl that you have a crush on, sure. I get that. Uh, you send a risky text and then you throw your phone across the room. So you don't see them typing or if they read it and you don't see them uh, respond, right? But if you're trying to make a plan, I need to, you know, I'm trying to plan with people over the phone or through text message the way that I would try to plan if I was in a battalion in the military, right? Like, hey, we need to make this plan right now. We need to make it operational. And we need to move out. And a lot of people aren't like that, let me tell you. Um, people do not, you know, this is nothing against Nick. This is just in general. People don't respect 
other people's time as much as they should or as well as they should. And so the fact, you know, I didn't assume that Nick was drunk, but I assume he was drinking, having a good time with friends at Buffalo Wild Wings on football NFL Sunday. So I'm like, listen, in the time that he's taking to respond, I can get my my shit and shower out of the way, right? Because everyone knows I have the routine um, <laughs> where you urinate, you defecate, you masturbate, and you exfoliate, right? The The shit and shower of it all. And I was like, you know, I can go ahead and take a poop, take a shower, brush my teeth, get dressed in the time between my response to him and his response to me in return. So that's why I did, uh, because I knew by the time he responded, I'd be ready to go and I could just jump uh, because I'm a, I'm a good friend. right? I'm a good person. And so he's like, you know, responding and I'm just like, hey, well, I'll head out to Buffalo Wild Wings. It's cool. I'll meet you there. Like, you don't have to do anything. I'll just drive across town, right? Downtown whipping on my way to you, as I always say. So I get in the car, right? And of course, I had to tell my mom that I was leaving. It was the first time I had driven uh, since the broken foot. And I had the boot with me. Obviously, you can't wear it when you drive uh, because it it's not that it it is so thick. It's not like, I mean, it's, it's like you're driving with a moon boot, right? Like this is Apollo 11. Uh, it, it's not that the boot is so thick and so big that you can't drive, right? I've, I've driven in combat boots before. Um, it's that it completely restricts the motion of your foot and ankle to hold it in place, right? It's sort of like a, a shock boot, um, you know, like a trauma boot. There's like a, a better uh, word for that. But it, it's meant to stabilize your foot and your ankle, hold in place. And in order to accelerate, right, or use the brake to decelerate, in order to use the pedals properly in a vehicle, you need to use your ankle uh, to go up and down, right? To make your foot go up and down. And you can't do that in a boot. So I have the Crocs on, but I have the boot with me, right? Keep that thing on me, as they say. Keep that thing on me. And as I'm pulling out, which is something I hardly ever say, uh, as I'm pulling out, he texts me and he's like, hey, I'm going to drop these girls off and then I'm, I'll come over to you. I'll come to you. I was like, dog, that ain't going to work. Uh, <laughs> that ain't going to work. Because one, I just had to, you know, get my mom to agree, not necessarily to let me drive, but like, you know, to get her over the hump that like, hey, I'm I'm going to operate a motor vehicle. I'm going to have to eventually. So this is me going to operate a motor vehicle with this broken foot. But also, like, what are we going to do as like two grown ass men hanging out in my parents house? I mean, I have a nice space where right, the studio where I'm recording this episode is a great space to hang out, but not with someone you know, it's like not every girl you can bring home to meet mom. You know what I mean? It's like not every friend or every experience you want to bring home. You don't want to have to go through that, right? I don't want to have to, to you know, introduce you or reintroduce you. It's just too much. I'm a grown man. So I'm like, listen, you do your thing and text me when you're done. I'm going to go for a drive because I like to drive and clear my mind, right? You know, uh, I love to hug the road, as they say. So... I'm driving and whatever, and he responds, you know, 20, 30 minutes later, as usual. And <laughs> I know he's going to love that. And he's like, well, I was like, I'm driving. He's like, well, where are you going? I was like, you know what? I'm going to take charge here because this is what I've learned from dealing. I don't, I don't want to say dealing because that's like very incel. Um, this is what I've learned from operating with women in modern dating is if you want, and this is really operating with anyone in your life. Um, because no one respects your time as much as yourself. And what I've learned is you have to take initiative, right? If you want something done 
you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. But if you want something done at all, you got to do it yourself. And it's like with women when they're like, hey, you know, like, let's go out. Or if you ask them out and it gets to that point where it's like, well, where do you want to go? What do you want to do? They want you to take initiative, right? And you should want to take initiative anyway. It's like they want you to take initiative to show effort, show that you care, show that you're a man who can make a plan, who can make things work, who can coordinate things and coordinate people. They want those military values, honestly. They want you to coordinate and mobilize a small platoon that is this date, right? They want that. They want to see that you can do that, that you're a man of action. And men are like, well, you know, I want women to do this. I want women to do that. And this isn't like an Andrew Tate, uh, you know, or like men of TikTok shit. This is just saying that I don't know why anyone would ever be against taking initiative in that sense. Now, don't get me wrong. If you've been dating for, you know, one, two, three years and your partner has never initiated any aspect of their relationship, you should probably reconsider your place in the world. But, you know, for a first date when it's sort of, it's like an exhibition match, right? It's truly, it's not the regular season. It's not the playoffs. It's not the Super Bowl. It's an exhibition game. It's preseason. And you're two teams that haven't faced each other. You're just coming out of the offseason, right? And you don't know your opponent. You don't know who they're going to put out on the field. You don't know, you know, you don't necessarily know your game plan or who you're going to put out on the field. You don't know what version of you you're going to get, right? Are you going to get the Brian Hoyer or are you going to get the Tom Brady out of yourself? You don't know if you're going to face the... Uh, uh, Baker Mayfield, or you're going to get Patrick Mahomes, right? You don't know who you're going to get on the other side of the field either. So if you can coordinate and facilitate any sort of interaction with someone like that, like on a date where you pick the field of play, right? You're picking who gets home field advantage. You pretty much automatically get home field advantage um, because you're picking the the place, the environment where the date's going to be, and you get to plan what's going to happen and how it's going to happen you're pretty much going in with a full game plan and with home field advantage. And, you know, with them, it's sort of like they just they just play your game. And that should build confidence, right? Any any man should want that. Uh, and which is sort of why it's it's goofy where I am on that like, hey, I, I want the women to coordinate and facilitate. I want the women to take initiative too, not because I feel like I deserve it or that I you know, needed or that I'm, you know, above and beyond worthy of I'm the prize and people need to take initiative for me. It's more like, why don't women want that power, right? Wouldn't, shouldn't everyone want that power? Why wouldn't they want to be in charge and determine the terms of engagement, right? Shouldn't anyone want to determine the terms of engagement in that type of relationship or exchange where, especially when, you know, there is power imbalance, but there's also more threat and danger to the women in those situations meeting strange men that they haven't gone out with before. You would think that they would want to be in control, not just for their own sense of power, but their own sense of safety and security as well. But anyway, um, so I, I've learned all these lessons where, you know, people want you to take initiative. Everyone wants you to take initiative in life because people don't like thinking for themselves as much as they think that they do. So I'm like, listen, I'm going to go down to 50-50 Tap House on Cork Street. Obviously, uh, you know, the main setting of most of these episodes. And you can meet me there, right? But I'm going to end up there within a few minutes. And that's where if you do want to see me, if you do want to hang out, I'm facilitating the neutral, <laughs> the neutral playing field, which is not very neutral because 
It's my place, right? I'm facilitating my home field advantage, and you can participate in this exhibition with me at this location. He says, great. He was like, do you mind if I bring a woman or, or some women? And I was like, yeah, dude, I really don't care. I assumed that you were with people. I assumed it was the 2012 Hanley boys basketball team. So when he said it was a couple of women, I was like, hey, this is you know already a step up, step in the right direction. So I get there, I get a table, get a beer, hang out, you know, and we're there at like 7, 7.30, they close at 10. And um, he shows up, right? I'm not going to get into what I did when I was waiting. Uh, this isn't one of those episodes, but he shows up and he has two women with him, right? One I had recognized from Pride from the previous episode, another one I had not recognized, right? So I'm not going to use their names um, just because, you know, it, it, we're acquaintances, right? I mean, I would probably say we're friends. I'm friends with, I don't say I'm friends with everyone, but like I'm friendly with everyone. It's usually up to the other person whether we're friends or not. I'd say I'm friends with these people, but you know, it's it's first encounter. So I don't want to just jump to that and, and drop people's names on the show. Uh, that would be inappropriate. So Nick shows up with these two lovely women. And uh, as soon as Nick sits down, he pulls me outside to go smoke. Obviously, I don't smoke. I don't use or consume tobacco products. I have enough vices, and enough problems in the world. But Nick pulls me outside and we go outside. And it's kind of raining a little bit, right? It's like Sunday morning. You know, I don't mind spending every day out on your corner in the pouring rain. Um, but, you know, sort of like that. So we go outside. He goes to smoke. And, and I sit down on the wet brick um I guess we like flower garden area. And we, we talk, right? That's sort of like where our hello begins. Obviously, Nick is a little intoxicated and I'm not going to gauge his level of intoxication. I'm not law enforcement. I'm no narc, uh, but you know, a little intoxicated smoking outside in the cold in the rain. And we talk and, and you know, a part of the conversation, a point of the conversation um, was something I, a lot of the conversation that he brought up were things that I wanted to talk about or things that had hit my mind, hit my line on the way to 50-50. And one of them was the way that he approached me that evening, right? So Nick comments on a Facebook post that has nothing to do with him. It's about a friend that he had never met before. Um, and then messages me and says, hey, like, what are you doing? Like, I want to see you. I want to hang out, like, immediately. All right, there's definitely a sense of um, immediacy in that conversation. And I responded because I'm a people pleaser. I don't know. I could get into these. I could get into the psychoanalysis of, of why I am the way that I am, right? Why I am, as Dave says. But it reminded me of something that happened. I think I mentioned it in the last episode. If I didn't, I'll just skim over it now. But a I guess two weeks ago, three weeks ago, my buddy Deshaun, uh, he messaged me in a similar way, and he was like, hey, like, you know, I need to see you, I need to talk to you, I need to uh, to link with you, and, you know, I want to see you, I want to talk to you about something. And it got to the point where by the time we, we were ready to link, it was like 10 or 11 o'clock at night, and I wasn't going to get there until like midnight, you know what I mean? It was going to be a late night. But Deshaun is one of my best friends. He's one of my oldest friends. And he is my, he's my brother, right? He's my brother in Christ. He's my brother in life. He's my brother in blood. I mean, you know, we come from the mud together, right? So Deshaun is my boy, right? And I know that if I was ever in dire straits, he would be there for me just as I've been there for him. 
And when he said that he needed to see me and it was important and I could sense the urgency and the immediacy, I jumped, right? Because that's what friends do, right? I mean, you show up, and I always say this, the most important thing in life is to show up, right? And you should show up for the people, not necessarily the people, you should show up for everyone if you can, but you should you should certainly show up for the people that are important to you, right? You show up for what is important. So, you know, I whip it downtown on my way to Deshaun and we meet up and we link and we talk about these very serious emotional uh, topics, these these serious things that are happening in our lives, um, things that he wanted my uh, experience and expertise and, and my opinions on, right? Like my expert opinion on these issues in his life. And we talked for hours and I didn't get home until like, you know, 4, 4.30 in the morning. Um, which is a late night, right? Uh, it's late night, early morning, right? Those late nights ain't good for you, as Drake says. Um, you know, two in the morning, my mind is on you. Four in the morning, it still hasn't moved. You know what I mean? And I got Drake quotes for days, right? But uh, the, the point of that is I showed up, right? It was, it was urgent. It was immediate. It was, it was a late night. It was out of the way for me. It was, you know, a distance to travel, to drive. Um, it was a lot of it, you know, he needed something from me, but I had to put in the majority of the effort, uh, to make it happen. It, it wasn't an equal engagement and I still did it because that's what you do. You show up for people, um, that matter. You show up for what matters. And I thought about that when I was going to see Nick, when I was going down to 50, 50, is that this is the t- this at this point in my life at 27 years old I've come to terms with the fact that this is pretty much the type of person that I am right I mean this is just who I am I was raised this way where when people need you you show up because I've needed people that never showed up for me right my father is a great example of that some of my previous significant others are great examples of that uh people that I needed in in moments that they even when it wasn't driving 40, 50 minutes out of the way at, you know, midnight, four in the morning to talk about these deep, you know, hard emotional topics to talk about, even when it was the simplest thing, like posting a tweet or posting a photo or just, you know, talking to me about something serious in my life through text, like not even in person, people wouldn't show up for me. Right. But I've also had people that have showed up for me. And I know what I know what both of those things feel like, and I know which one I want to instill in other people, right? I don't want to be someone who they have to create distance from me or they have to they look at me differently or don't think of me as fondly or you know as lovingly because when they needed me, I didn't show up, I wasn't there. I want people to know that I love them, and a way of showing that you love someone is by showing up for them, especially your brothers, right. And that's what brothers are for. And Deshaun and I are really like, we're like the movie for brothers. I mean, that's like us. But that's just the person that I am. That's the person I was raised where, you know, if someone needs help, you're there. And you hope, you do that with the hope that when you need help, someone will be there for you as well. I have no doubt in my mind that Deshaun would be there for me in person if I needed him. Uh, and that's sort of what I wanted to feel with Nick is like, you know, this is my opportunity to show Nick like, hey... I do still have a lot of love and respect for you. The same love and respect I've had for the last decade is still there. And even though I didn't really have the opportunities or the ability to show you this 10 years ago, this is what I would have done 10 years ago. And this is what I would have done 
yesterday because this is what I'm doing today, right? The same thing I would have done 10 years ago is the same thing I'm doing today. I haven't changed up. And I wanted to show him that, like, hey, you know, 10 years ago, 2013, 2014, you know, back when we were seniors in high school, 2012, 2013, I would have showed up for you. I would have came to bat for you because you showed up for me. You would have came to bat for me. That was our friendship back then. I want to show you, hey, I haven't seen you in 10 years, right? I haven't seen you in a whole fucking decade, but I am still the most loyal, honest, you know, integrity-driven person that I know, and I'm going to show up for you today because I would have showed up for you every single day over the last 10 years, even though I didn't, even though that wasn't, you know, my purpose, that wasn't called upon me. This is nothing new, right? This ain't nothing new. So I did, and he said the same thing, and I thought that that was really interesting that something that I had been thinking about, how that's sort of who I am, is something that he noticed and admires in me. And, you know, we talked about that, about like, like who would show up and why they would show up or like if they would show up. And I felt validated and justified and seen in knowing that that is something that people do see in me, right? It is something that does not go unnoticed, right? People, when they look at me, they may see a lot of things and they may feel a lot of things, but they know that I've never changed up on anyone, right? That And that is important to me is to be real because I've tried to, I've tried to be a lot of things in life, right? I've tried to be a lot of things. I've failed a lot of things in life. I failed to be a lot of things in life. I failed to be a lot of things to a lot of people. But I've always been real, and I've never switched up or changed up on anyone. And 10 years have passed, and he still thought the same thing. He still saw that in me. And that felt really validating that something that I think is the most important or one of the most important things in any relationship, any interpersonal relationship, is that you're real and you don't change up on people and that people think I'm crazy. People think I'm a helpless, hopeless romantic. People think I'm overly emotional. People think I have a problem with rage and anger. People think that I'm vindictive. People think that I, I seek vengeance and you know uh, retribution and, and that sort of vigilante justice. People look at me and they, they see someone who operates at a 110% emotional level but they also know that it's 100% authentic, 100% real, and that I've never treated anyone how, in a way where like it's like I treat people the way I want to be treated, right? I've never switched up on anyone or treated them any other way. I've never been a hypocrite ever in my life, right? That is what it, they mean when they say, you know, don't take the Lord's name in vain is don't be a hypocrite, right? And I've never in my life been a hypocrite. And... I've never switched up and I've always been authentic and real to myself and real to everyone else. And 10 years later, people still think of me that way, even though they've never interacted. They haven't really interacted, interacted with me in those 10 years. Haven't seen each other in person in 10 years. Our only interactions have been, you know, electronic through social media or through messages or whatever. But that's something that people still see in me. And, and that means a lot to me. Right. And I told Nick that I was like, hey, like, you know, I, I really do appreciate that. Thank you for validating that, but also valuing that as well. Right. Um, and then we talked about, you know, sort of where our, our friendship was and where it had been. 
and I guess why we were sitting, why we were sitting and standing face to face with one another on October 2nd of 2022, right in the middle of, of the evening in the rain. And I, I think a lot of it has to do with, I think that we had different motivations for being there, right? And this could be like a sappy romantic book or movie or, or lifetime special. But I think that both of us had different reasons for being there. But it, it boils down to nostalgia, I think, is part of it. Um, but also just the idea that, like, you know, we need real. We need authentic. We need to feel something, right? Humans, at, at their core, at the crux, need to feel. They need to be transparent with their emotions. They need to be vulnerable. They need to open up. And they need to feel things and they need to share things. And that's hard to find. That is extremely hard to find for some freaking reason. And I'm not going to speak for Nick. I can hypothesize why my presence spoke to him and called on him. But for me, I feel alone all of the time. There is not one moment in my life where I don't feel alone. And it's not that I'm, I don't know if it's lonely. I do feel lonely, certainly. Um, and even with, I'm, uh, even when I'm with people that I love, that make me feel good, right? Because like I always say, like the Lumineers say, love should make you feel good. Even when I'm with people that I love, or that mean the world to me, or that I mean a lot to them, there's still that that part of me that's missing. There's still something in me that is missing. There's a missing piece. And I can hypothesize again what that is. I'm not going to sit here and psychoanalyze myself on this episode. But there is something missing in me. And it's something that this person, which I'll talk about later, um, something that I think that they fill, or at least it's not their responsibility to fill it, but something that I do feel like they do. That's why they called me, right? But there is this dire need that I have to to experience life. And, and when I say that, I don't mean like jumping out of airplanes or swimming with sharks or, you know, all of that stuff. I mean, stuff that I want to do, right? It, it's not an adrenaline-fueled experience. It, it, it's just experiencing life as a human, like talking about my thoughts, feelings, emotions, talking about the things that move me, that hurt me, that make me smile, that make me frown, that make me cry. Like it, it's literally, I just have this desire and I think everyone does. They just suppress it, right? They just suppress this desire. They just hold it down and suffocate it until it dies. This desire to, to be fully and completely accepted and heard and experienced, right? People desire to be experienced, and they want them. They want to be able to be them full, their full selves when that happens. And a lot of people, like I said, have suppressed that to the point where it's not even a priority anymore because they don't think it. They don't think it can happen, which I get that. Right? I've lost plenty of hope in my life, but there's still that romantic notion in me that that hopeful spirit, that that power of will, that says it's out there. Right. It is it is out there. The ability to completely be myself, whatever that may be, whoever that may be, and to interact with someone who is being completely themselves 
that is out there. And to me, that's what true love is, right? That's why I'm in love with this woman. That's why I am in love with this old friend of mine. That's why I, I, I so desperately cling to the idea of her breath and her touch and her scent and her identity. That's why I, I, I'm so drawn to her is because she makes me feel like I can be myself wholly and completely. And I feel like nothing in life will ever stop her from being herself wholly and completely. And it's taken a lot of time and effort and hardship and pain and suffering for us to get to these points in our lives, which is why it wouldn't have worked 10 years ago, right? Because we weren't 100% ourselves yet then. And that's why I think it would work now. Obviously, there's that whole, you see that notion on, on the internet where it's like men will tell you everything they love about you and then snuff all of those things out, right? And that scares me, right? Because that's what happened with Ivy three years ago, and that's why she's happily engaged to be married to someone else, is because all of the things I loved about her, you know, her light shined so bright. And she is where I got that phrase that, you know, she set my soul on fire. But all of the shit in life, you know, corrupted me to the point where I was, I felt like everything I did snuffed out that flame and suffocated, choked out that flame, right? It, that's what you do to, to fire is you suffocate it. You take away the oxygen so it can't feel the fire. And that's what I, I fear I did to Ivy. And I think she would agree that that is ultimately the reason uh, that our relationship, like if you had to boil it down to, to a theme, it was that, you know, my life was so overwhelming and so heavy for me to carry that I felt like, you know, me bending over backwards to carry this load on my back was suffocating her light to the point where it choked it out. And all the things I loved about her weren't there anymore. And it was my fault. Um, and I've spent three years dying inside because I did that to someone. I I've spent three years dying inside because I did that to the person I've loved the most. And I've spent three years trying to work on never doing that again. And that's sort of my active fear. And that's also my active goal going into my next relationship is to never snuff out someone's fire, never, you know, dim someone's light. Right. And that's what I think about is I, I want this, this woman, I know this is a tangible, I want this woman that I'm in love with to, to shine as brightly as possible. I want this woman to burn me and, and melt the skin melt the flesh off of my bones and bleach my bones with the burning hot flame. Just incinerate me with the heat of the passion of the love of, of who she is. I want her to just completely just disintegrate me as a person and, and send me into the non-existence that I fear so deeply. Um, you know, I, I want to be cremated so that I can be the the ash on the ground that she walks on. You know what I mean? And anyway, so that's sort of what I think about it, is I so desperately want to experience that with people. I want to live at that level with everyone instead of just myself. And I felt like this experience with Nick gave me the opportunity to find that, right? To do that, to, to find another person who was also in that same space, in that same mindset, where this person is also searching for that, maybe not for the same reasons, and maybe they wouldn't voice it in the same way 
or express it in the same way or describe it in the same way. But I think that Nick is also looking for that out of life because I think everyone is looking for that out of life. Everyone is looking to be 100% themselves with someone who is also 100% themselves. And they want it to have chemistry and they want it to be healthy and they want it you know, to be mutual, mutually beneficial and mutually respectful. And they don't want just symbiosis, right? They want to live together in mutual harmony, right? And they want to benefit from one another. And I think that my honesty and openness and transparency and integrity showed Nick that maybe he could get that for an instant. And I wanted to see him again because, one, I I love him and I've always loved him. He's always been, you know, a great friend to me. He's also been someone I've, I've treasured and cherished. He's also been, you know, an integral, vital role in my, uh, you know, becoming a man in high school. He's, he's vital to my high school experience. And I'm more proud of the person I've become since then. And I want to show someone who got me that far how far I took it after I took the ball and ran with it, right? You know what I mean? He, he handed the ball off to me. I want to show him how far I've ran with it since he handed it off to me. And so that's why I, I did it. And, and, you know, I feel like we got to express a little bit of that uh, together with one another and, and talk about just life and where we are. So I'm about to take a quick break here and, and get a drink. And then I'm going to get into the conversation that we had. Uh, it's going to be very meta. So if you enjoy Late Nights with Lance, you're going to enjoy this conversation. I'm going to take a quick break. It's about 50 minutes in. Uh, it's 1230 p- uh, 12.30 a.m. Get a drink and I'll be right back. I just want to let you know, I love you all very dearly with all my heart. Uh, and I appreciate y'all listening. So I'll be right back. Peace. And we're back. And I'm going to jump right back into the story. So after Nick smokes about half a pack of cigarettes and we talk about life and, you know, our our hopes and dreams and our thoughts, feelings, emotions, we go back inside and we join the ladies uh, at the table. And we start talking. And of course, it's sort of like, how did Nick and I meet? How did we, you know, get to know each other? How did our friendship survive over the last 10 years without this personal interaction, you know? And we just started talking about, I guess, our friendship and, and who we are. And it got into, like, why our friendship had persevered, why it had, had lasted so long. And inevitably, this show came up in conversation, right? And I don't always intend for everyone to hear about Late Nights with Lance, right? I talk about it on my Instagram and Facebook stories. I joke about it with my friends. Uh, I have a pretty large audience, surprisingly. But it's not like, you know, I'm not one of those kids that went to Harvard that has to let everyone know that I went to Harvard in every conversation, right? It's not like, hey, uh, nice to meet you. My name is Lance, and I have a podcast that also has my name in it. You know, I don't say that to people. Um, if anything, I hardly introduce myself to people anymore. They just know who I am. And, uh, it's funny. A lot of people I'm introduced to know about the show. Uh, but anyway, you know, I don't go into, into these interactions saying like, Hey, I am the somewhat successful host of a small to medium market late night, uh, talk show podcast program, whatever you want to call it. You know what I mean? Um, because it's not really a brag, right? It, it's not even a subtle brag. It's not really a brag. Like, hey, I'm I'm on the small market online talk show, which 
It's called Late Nights with Lance, but the episodes aren't really as regular as they should be just because I have mental problems. Um, <laughs> you know, I have a lot of shit going on. So it, it, it's it's hard to be like, yeah, dude, I'm the host of this program. Even though when people listen to the show, when they find the show and listen to it, they like it. Um, it it's a hard sell to explain it to people, right? It's one of those things where it's like show, don't tell. Or it's the, um, you know, it's better for someone to find out something than for them to be told of that thing. It's better to, for someone to find out than to be informed. It's like when people, if you go up to someone and you're like, hey, I have a million followers on Instagram. They're going to be like, this must be Logan Paul's douchey-er brother, right? No one wants someone to go up to, to like a, a lady that you're attracted to in a public place and be like, yeah, like, hey, by the way, I have a million followers on Instagram. That's like the douchiest thing that you could ever say. But if you introduce yourself to someone and you exchange phone numbers or social media or they scope you out on social media and they see that you have a million followers on Instagram, you're going to be like, wow, this guy has some social clout, some social status, some social currency that I didn't expect or suspect. And he is modest enough and humble enough to not have mentioned that. And it's like, wow, this guy must be popular or famous for something, right? It's like that. I don't want to be like, hey, I have a show, and they'd be like, oh, you're a fucking typical, you know, mid-20s white guy in America who has a podcast, um, and also what's your podcast about, and I tell them, and they're like, ooh. But when people find the show, or they actually do listen to it, they're like, wow, this is pretty enjoyable. So it came up where, because Nick and I had been had been talking about it, um, and they were like, what is, they were interested in the show, uh, surprisingly. Because apparently people are interested in the things that I have to talk about, which is always, you know, a shock to my self-confidence and my self-esteem that people actually care about me or, or people are actually interested in who I am as a person. And I'm like, well, the show is, it's called Late Nights with Lance. It's available on, you know, the, the big market platforms. And it's about my life and sort of how wild and crazy and, and sometimes shitty my life is. Like, oh, how many listeners do you have? You know, and I'm like, uh, you know, it depends on the episode, but I typically have, you know, a few hundred to a thousand listeners on the show. Um, couldn't tell you the exact number of subscribers. They don't tell me that information, but I, you know, I have a few hundred to a thousand uh, listeners per, uh, you know, segment. They're like, wow, that's that's pretty good. Or I'm like, yeah, it's it's as many followers as I have on social media or friends on social media. But these people actually do listen to my show and interact with my show where it's like, you know, you'll have 600 followers on Instagram and 20 people like your post. And then 150 of them see your story. It's like, OK, well, one, ouch. And two, where's everyone else? You know what I mean? But with the podcast, it's it's more honest because these people that, you know, I see interact with the show are actually listening to the show. Um, I'm like, yeah, you know, I have a pretty good number of subscribers, a pretty good number of listeners, pretty good audience. Um, the episodes are, are pretty popular. The, the crazier the episode, the crazier the story, the more popular it is. Um, and they're like, well, you know, give us an example. Like, like, what is it about? And I was like, well, the most recent episode is about this young lady that I am in love with. And of course, you know, it, it, it's funny because women that love you in return, or women that love you, uh, that are jealous or envious or desire you when you desire someone else, usually don't like when you talk about a woman that you're in love with, right? 
which is what the poison dream is about, is I spent years of my my high school life, years of my my teenage years, telling this friend of mine uh, that I was in love with someone else, and that obviously created conflict um, in that relationship because I I should have been infatuated with in love with the person that I was talking to and I never got that right obviously for more about this I would go listen to the poison dream um but women who don't know you or aren't your friends not that you know you can't be friends but women who are our acquaintances newly met acquaintances or women that are just hearing you speak about women love seem to love when you talk about how much you love another woman right i it's like people Love, love. People truly love, love. And people like to hear about like beautiful, poetic, Shakespearean style, you know, true, honest, real life romance because they want to imagine that if it exists with that person or for that person, it would exist for them as well. Right. I mean, that's just that's just basic human nature is, hey, I want to know that something exists because if it exists then it could exist for me specifically. And people just love love. That's why people read romance novels. It's why people watch those silly rom-coms. You know, it's why people like that movie with Ryan Reynolds and Sandra Bullock, The Proposal. It's why they like that movie. Um, It's why I like Wedding Crashers, (laughs) you know? And it's why people listen to sappy love songs. I mean, Dave Matthews said, you know, somebody's broken heart became your favorite song. And people just love the idea that true love exists because they like to imagine that it can or will exist for them. And I think it's also that idea that people like to know that the, you know, sex or gender that they're attracted to can also feel strong emotions. uh, So they know that it's possible and it's not just them feeling strong emotions for someone of that gender, right? Like women heterosexual women like to know that heterosexual men that they're attracted to can feel deep love and true romance and experience that lust for life because they don't want to have to deal, you know, nobody wants to deal with people of the opposite sex that they're attracted to that are shallow or superficial or emotionally numb or emotionally stunted, right? No one wants that especially when you feel at such a high level if you're just out to fuck then it doesn't really matter uh someone's emotional intelligence but if you're out to find love and find true love and and build a life with someone you want and need to know that they are emotionally available and emotionally mature and can feel love because you need them to feel love for you and so i think that women you know heterosexual women like when heterosexual men express those romantic feelings and their just obsession with a woman that they love or that they're infatuated with because it is romantic and it shows them that, Hey, there are men out there that do feel that way about women. And that's just, you know, regular observation. So I'm like, yeah, this episode is about this woman that I am in love with, even though it really doesn't make any sense because I haven't seen her in a decade and we don't really know each other. I mean, we know each other, and I think that we know enough about each other's character and our deep convictions. I think we know enough about each other at that deep-rooted level of who we are as a soul 
that we will always know each other well, but we don't know like the ins and outs, the everyday shit uh, in each other's lives, right? We don't know like how she takes her coffee or, you know, my favorite breakfast on Saturdays, right? You know what I mean? We don't know the minutia of life, the little things that make life beautiful, uh, but we know enough about each other on a deep emotional level that we do know each other and have never not known each other. I mean, that's which just sounds super romantic. We've never not known each other, you know. Um, we were lovers in a past life, if you will, uh, and hopefully in every past life and hopefully in this life and hopefully in, in every future life, we remain lovers. But, uh, and, and they were like, oh my God, like, who is it? And of course, obviously I told them the young lady's name, which again, I won't use on the show. I won't use until I tell her that I'm in love with her, right? The moment that I tell her that I'm in love with her, and however that goes, that will be my uh, approval. That would be my approval moment to actually talk about this um, truthfully, honestly, and not anonymously. But until I until I tell her how I feel, I'm not going to use her name, um, which I know she knows. She has to know at this point. Um, and I, I use her name, and, and of course, Nick knows who she is. Uh, Nick knows who she is probably more than I know who she is. Um, Nick, you know, knows her very well, knows her, Nick knows her very well because they're friends, but he also knows her best friends very well. And so of course, Nick knew who it was because we went to high school together, right? Nick and I graduated in 2013 and this young lady graduated in 2014. And lo and behold, the woman that he was with, who I assume is his girlfriend or his, you know, I, I don't, you know, maybe titles, you shouldn't assume titles. But like the woman that he was sitting next to, uh, <laughs> who seemed to be his his woman of choice, uh, of course knew the fuck who this person was, right? She knew who the woman was that I was talking about, and I was like, "What, dude?" And apparently they had worked together, or they had worked at the same place, maybe not at the same time, but they had worked together. They had worked at this location. They had worked with the same coworkers. They knew who this person was. Uh, and I was like, well, fuck, dude, uh, this would have been a lot easier to tell some strangers that I am in love with another stranger than it is to tell these strangers that I'm in love with this person that they also know. Like, that is so, that's tough, right? Uh, of course, I didn't lose my cool, right? Didn't lose my cool, uh, cool, calm, and collected. And we explained to the other young lady who was sitting next to me who this person is, right? Um, and she was like, well, tell us about this episode, tell us about the Poison Dream episode. Tell us about your relationship with this person. Why are you in love with this person if you haven't seen her in 10 years? And I was like, well, fuck. Uh, because there's a, a hell of a lot of backstory to this, right? I mean, the backstory for this goes back to 2007, 2008. Um, and again, I haven't seen this person since, uh, what would it be? Like October of 2013, almost. So it's going on 10 years, right? So I graduated in June, June 13th, 2013. I came back for homecoming that year for the class of 2014, which would have been October of 2013. I haven't seen this woman since October 13th of 2013. Uh, so why would I still be in love with this person after 10 years? Um, I was like, well, shit, dude, like this is, there's a lot of reasons. I mean, I, there's every reason in the world to be in love with this, with this woman. I mean, she's, you know, she's everything. Uh, but that's not the point. So I'm like, well, you know, 
it all started back in middle school and then in, in early high school when I was in love with my best friend. Um, and I was, I talked to this other young lady about how I was in love with my best friend and she never approved. She never liked that. She never liked that I was in love with her, but she also never liked that I was talking uh, about her with her. Right. You, you know, and of course I'm using lots of pronouns here. So if you don't like pronouns, sorry, this is all pronouns. Um, but you know, the, the young lady that I'm in love with never really liked that. I would always talk to her about being in love with my best friend. Um, and that created some, some strife, some conflict in our relationship and our friendship. And obviously I went into more details. I mean, I talked about this in the poison dream, right? And they were like, well, what does any of this have to do with now? So I was like, well, shit. So then, you know, I dated this young lady for an extended period of time. Talking about Ivy. Dated Ivy for a long time. Obviously, we broke up, you know, rest in peace, uh, RIP in peace. And, you know, I had to think about why I dated Ivy, why I loved Ivy, why I still love Ivy, all that shit, right? I had to think about, like, what attracted me to her? Why was she my person? And I thought about that. And then I dated Cleo for a while, right? Again, RIP in peace, rest in peace. Um, dated Cleo for a while. And then I thought about, you know, why did I like Cleo? Why was I attracted to Cleo? Why did I love Cleo? Why this, that, and the other, right? Because I love them both dearly, obviously. Um, like I said before, you know, she ain't Ivy, you know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> but I, I go back and then I thought about, well, you know, I loved Cleo first. I loved Cleo after Lauren, you know, my best friend. And then, but it never worked out. We never got the timing right. And I dated Ivy and loved Ivy, obviously, with everything that I am and ever will be. And then that didn't work out, rest in peace. Uh, and I dated Cleo, right? And that didn't work out. But I was like, well, so what is attracting me to these women? What do they have in common? What is working and what is certainly not working? Because uh, obviously something is not working. Um, and where do the comparisons lie? And I, I've spent years thinking about this, literally, you know, over two years thinking about, you know, just going over my relationship with Ivy every single day of my fucking life, you know, crying myself to sleep every night for three years, trying to figure out myself and figure out my place in the world and how it relates to her. You know, it, it, it's, you know, like John Mayer said, I wonder where I am in my relationship to you. You know, I am burning up in your atmosphere. I wonder where I am in my relationship to you. And then I think about Cleo and, and how, you know, I, that got all fucked up and, and whatever. And then I think, well, what do these women have in common? And what do I look for in those women? And can I find those things in the other women I've dated? Right. And it all boiled down to these, you know, certain characteristics that that I, I admire, that I adore, that I, I search for in a person. And I was like, OK, I, I've boiled down what I look for in a partner. Right. What I look for in a friend, a best friend, a girlfriend a significant other, you know, a partner, a spouse, whatever. I boiled down what I'm looking for. But to best understand something, it's not just knowing what it is, but also what it's made out of and where it comes from, right? It's easy to say this is, you know, this is a pipe or this is a, a photograph of a pipe, right? This is a pipe, but it's also like, you know, what is it made out of that makes it what it is? Is this a pipe or is this a photograph? What is the difference? What is it made out of? And also, where does it come from? Because where it comes from determines, I guess, the intentions, right? What are the intentions of the painter? 
was the intention of the painter to make this a pipe or to make this just a painting of a pipe, right? It's a whole spiel. Go see A Fault in Our Stars, right? Uh, <laughs> and, you know, it's just a pipe. But regardless, I was like, well, I, I know what it is I'm looking for, looking at. Let me find out, like, where exactly that comes from in me. Like, what exactly is that in me? What is it made out of that's setting my soul on fire? What are the ingredients, the elements of this? All right? It's like, in law school, you do this thing called Iraq. Uh, when you write an essay, which is, you know, uh, issue, rule, uh, explanation, uh, rule statement, rule explanation. Then there's the analysis, the rule analysis, and then the conclusion, right? IRAC. It's I-R-A-C. And that's what I was trying to do with my romantic life. Uh, I was trying to IRAC my life. And it's like, okay, well, here's the rule statement, um, you know, and here's the rule explanation, but I need the rule analysis, and then I can make a conclusion. And so the rule analysis is, well, where does this come from? And it all boils down to these desires in my life, which I think come from this one person who is sort of the archetype for these desires, right? The, the woman that has inspired me to love all of these other women and what I look for in these other women. Of course, back then I couldn't see it. I was blind. I was naive. I was young, dumb, and full of cum, dude. I was, I was, you know, I was too much and too little all at the wrong time. And the analysis came to, well, I, I like this because this young lady did this back in 2011. This young lady did this back in 2012. This young lady did this back in 2013. This young lady has been doing this online for the last 10 years. This young lady talks to me like this you know, she experiences me like this. She allows me to be myself like this. The analysis was everything that I've ever looked for in a person boils down to something that this friend of mine did or has done to me or with me or just in general over the last decade. And therefore, my conclusion is that the whole time I've been in love with this person, right? The... The issue is I'm single, I'm alone, I need to find what I'm looking for and why I'm looking for it so I can better know how to gain that, right? I need to know what I'm looking for and how to get it so that I can actually go out and operationalize and do it and get it. And of course, you know, the 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 statement, the rule statement and the rule explanation is these are the things that I'm looking for in a partner, Right. I'm I'm stating these are what I need out of out of a person. These are what I need out of the love of my life. The analysis is these are the things that I need out of the love of my life because of or from this. And where does this where does this desire or this necessity come from? And the conclusion is that all of these desires and necessities and everything I need and want and yearn for out of the love of my life comes from this one person who I neglected. 10 years ago. And that came to the conclusion that I'm in love with this woman who has always been everything for me. I was just too up my own ass to see it or appreciate it or, you know, try to, to make something happen. Right. It was just never, I was never the right person for her. And I, I worry that I, I never will be the right person for her. And that's sort of the fear is I, I, I never was the right person for her. And it's like, well, now it's, is it too late? even though we're completely different people. So it may be too late for that version of her, 
but is it just the right time for this version of her? And will I be enough for the next version of her? You know what I mean? Because I just I want to be everything for her. She motivates me and inspires me to want to be everything for everyone all the time. Just, just for her. Like I want to go and pull the the galaxies and the nebulas and the suns and the moons and the stars and the planets. I want to pull them out of the sky, out of the heavens, and give them to her because I want to be everything for her. Um. And I was like, well, fuck, dude, I'm in love with this person. And I, I really, I had been teetering on that for a while, right? This isn't something that just happened back when I was at the beach in June. This is something I had been sitting on for the last year, year and a half that I had actually told Alex and Elaine about. Because the other day when I was looking for photographs in our group chat to post for Elaine's birthday, I found photographs of this young lady that I had sent to them a year 18 months ago, talking about her. This isn't a new realization that all of a sudden I think, damn, I'm in love with this girl, or damn, I really missed out on this girl 10 years ago, or damn, you know, I, I missed out, or, or whatever. This is something I've, I've sat and thought on how much I, I have loved her for the last year or so, to the point where I've gotten to the point where I reject people because I love this person, right? I reject people because of my imagination. And I realized, like, wow, I, I was talking about this for a year before I even admitted it to myself. And then, obviously, in June at the beach, what really set this over the top, that it was like a sign from the universe or a sign from God or whatever, was I posted about the beach and I posted about what I was doing with the lighthouse journey, right? And then I checked social media and she posts photos of her as... A child, I almost said youngling, as if this is fucking Star Wars Attack of the Clones. Uh, you know, she posted photos of herself as a child at the same beach, basically, that I was at uh, in the present day. And, and just seeing her as a child and, and knowing her having, you know, obviously, we, we grew up a little bit together in middle school and then in high school. Uh, and then seeing her now, I mean, she's, you know, the most ravishing woman that is alive. I mean, she's the most just elegant just completely beautiful being that exists, her presence, her aura just just comes off of her body. She's glowing, you know. Amber is the color of her energy. And um, when she posted those photos of her as a kid at the beach, after I had just posted photos of me at, at the beach, I was like, this, this is the universe telling me that I was right or that what I'm feeling is right. It's legitimate. It's valid. It's justified. And then I, I told, that's why I told Lauren, and that's where the poison dream pretty much picks up, is that, hey, like, you know, in a, in a sick, twisted, you know, game of fate, in a, in a twist of fate, I'm telling the other woman, I'm telling my best friend now that I'm in love with the woman that I used to talk to about my best friend and that she used to, you know, be irritated with. It's a sick, you know, twist of, twist of fate, right? And, um... I was telling this to these these women that I had never met before, and they are enthralled in this story, right? And I admit it's a great story. Right? Everyone loves a good romance uh, story. Everyone loves a good uh, tale. And, of course, Nick the whole time is like, you know, he's in it, right? Of course, he's a little, I shouldn't say a little, he's intoxicated. Um, and he also is just happy to be there and happy to be with me in my presence, just as I was happy to be in his presence. But, like, all of that together created the perfect, like, he was jazzed up, right? He was razzed up. He was he was jizzed up, as I say, um, for me to be in love with this person who he also knows very well 
And that sort of also validated the feelings too. It's like, hey, like, yeah, I know Lance and I know this woman that he's in love with. And for the first time in Lance's life, I think that this is the right woman, right? It, it's other people are saying to me, you know, for the first time in your adult life, Lance, I think that you are actually experiencing true love. Like this actually feels like it, right? This feels like the one. And they're like, okay, well, where are you now? Like, what is the situation now? And I'm like, well, fuck, dude, this is sort of the sequel to, you know, the this is a sequel to To Be Frank, but it's also sort of a sequel to The Poison Dream as well, where where are we now? And if I give too much detail away, everyone's going to know who this is, right? At this point, I assume that everyone listening to this podcast and everyone who active, not just follows me, I mean, actively follows me on social media, knows who this person is. They have to, right? Especially her best friend knows who this person is. Um, Which is how I'm going to jump into this conversation. So, I don't know if these people listen to the show or not. I assume that they do. uh, And I don't want to get too much into it if they do or don't. But, essentially, I had been in communication with this young lady. We had a great conversation. We've had a number of great conversations and we ended our last conversation with the I love you, right? With the classic I love you, which I know for those who don't know, for those who hadn't heard that, it's, it's like a great moment. Like, oh, my God. But it's it's that classic man moment where I didn't ask any questions, right? It's the man in me that didn't ask for any supplemental information. It's also the lawyer in me that, you know, you don't ask questions that you don't want the answer to, you know, ask and answer. I, you know what I mean? Do you love me? Ask and answer. Uh, I don't need any other information. This is just your testimony is clear and concise. I don't need any more fluff to it, right? Which, or, you know, my mistake, obviously, because then you're like, well, what did, how did she mean it? Like, did, does she, how did she mean it? Does she know that you meant it more? Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it just leaves a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of blanks, a lot of open spaces, blank spaces, uh, baby, and I'll write your name. And, I thought about that and I was like, well, you know, we ended this conversation with I love you. Um, and then we've had just minor interactions since then. This is probably a month ago now, honestly, a few weeks ago at this point. Um, of course, you know, a few messages here, or there. She's not active on social media, uh, which I'm not going to say that that's an excuse. I'm not going to say that that's I'm not I don't want to speculate about the radio silence. Right. The moment that you start to speculate about the radio silence is the moment that you become desperate, right? The moment that you begin to speculate about the radio silence is the moment that that they take too much of you up front. And it's not that I don't think she would ever do that. She's not that type. She is way too emotionally, she's too intelligent, but she's also too emotionally intelligent. And she's too much of a kind person, right? She's too altruistic to be manipulative. But people, of course, can be naturally manipulative, right? I, I am. I know that I am. Um, ask any of my ex-girlfriends. I'm naturally manipulative because I'm a strong advocate with a superior intellect and a pretty large lexicon uh, of vocabulary, right? I'm a smart guy who can speak well, and you can certainly use that to your advantage in some circumstances. And she's the same way, right? She's a smart woman, uh, and she speaks well, and she she's very honest. And, you know, I don't think that either of us try to be manipulative. I don't think anyone really tries unless they're bad people. But the point is, the moment that I begin to speculate about the radio silence or the change in the amount of conversation or the change in the tone of the conversation is the moment that I lose 
I lose. In the moment I lose, I lose her. I lose myself. I lose my sanity. I lose the situation, right? Because then it's like I've become obsessed or I've become dependent. And I may be, I may be both of those things, honestly. Uh, and, and I'm okay with admitting that. But I know that most people aren't okay with accepting that, right? I'm fine admitting it, but people don't want you to admit it because they don't want you to be that. Or they do, they just don't want it to be so obvious. People want you to be obsessed with them. And <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's just a simple fact. People want people to be obsessed with them. It's just they want the right people at the right time with the right actions, right? A healthy obsession, if you will. So I'm not going to speculate about the radio silence or why things are different. You know, she's not active on social media. It says that, you know, there's the whole the red receipt thing is a bitch. I just got to be honest with you. Pardon my language, pardon my French, but the red receipts are a bitch. And the fact that, you know, I have red receipts on and people know when I read a message, right? I rarely do the thing where I don't open it. So it does, it says that I haven't read it, right? Even though I know what the message says, I know who sent it. I know all that. I don't do that thing where it's like, oh, I got a message from this person. I'm not going to open it because I don't want them to think that I've read it. I'm not that type of person, right? Obviously, you can tell by this show I'm not that type of person, right? She might be. Uh, she might be smart enough. <laughs> to, uh, as a woman, you have to have a little bit. Of, you have to have a different type of intellect, right? Women have to have a different type of intelligence when it comes to interactions with the opposite sex. Um just because of how men are. I, I get that completely, right? There are plenty of terrible men in the world that have ruined everything for everyone. That I get you have to have a different set of skills to interact with men in that romantic environment, in that romantic atmosphere. I get that. Um, but I'm not the type of person to play those games. I don't play any games. Um, you know, except for Uno. But <laughs> that being said the majority of the times if she she is here's how it goes she is either responding or if she's not when she's not responding she's not reading them that's how it goes right she you know if she, when she reads them she responds immediately or if she's not responding at all for days or a week i think it's probably the longest she's gone without responding it says that she hasn't even read the message, right? So she she is either, her actions are either responding to my message, reading and responding, or not reading them at all. And you think, well, those are two fine options, right? Those are two great options. But everyone knows in life that, it, you know, decisions boil down to typically two, uh, you know, decision points, two, you know, paths that you can choose. But, that's never really the case in terms of personal or interpersonal interaction because theoretically everyone gets notifications on their phone unless they don't have the app downloaded, right? Which is fair. If you don't have the app downloaded and you only access Instagram through your browser on your computer, it's different, right? Uh, so, and that could very well be the case because she seems like the type of person that wouldn't have social media on her phone because of who she is and her emotional intelligence which is valid. But typically you get notifications about DMs and it says the person's name, right? It would say my name and it would show like 150 characters of the message, the first 150 characters of the message. But it wouldn't tell me that she read my message, even though she had known the majority, if not all of what I had said to her, 
because she hadn't opened the conversation thread, right? That's the difference. So if you just swipe that away and then forgot about it, you know, that's the thing is, you know, would you swipe it away and then forget about it, which there's, you know, no harm, no foul, no malice in that is, hey, I I swiped it away because I'm busy right now or I don't want to respond or I have a lot on my plate and then I forget about it because the notifications aren't um, persistent because they have persistent notifications on the iPhone now. Um, And then I don't have the app downloaded or I don't go on the app or whatever, which I know that's, you know, again, that's not true, but whatever. There's that aspect of it. Or did you swipe it because, you know, which this is more me is I would swipe it to get uh, rid of it, but I'd constantly be thinking about it, but I'd constantly have to make the choice to not open the conversation because I want to willfully and (laughs) willfully and wantonly ignore the conversation, maliciously ignore the conversation. Right. And, you know, it's one of those things. The act speaks for itself, I guess. (laughs) I, in my opinion, the in my opinion, in regards to ignoring DMs or ghosting, soft ghosting, you know, if we're soft quitting, uh, soft ghosting, um, ignoring DMs or waiting to respond to DMs and that whole thing where you know who sent you a DM and you know what they said, but because you didn't specifically click on the app and go into the app, into the conversation, it says you didn't read it, even though we know that you've read it because you've seen it. To me, that is willful and wanton, right? That act speaks for itself that that is, that is malicious in my mind. Um, but not everyone looks at life that way. Not everyone looks at life through the telescope or, or through the microscope that I, I look at life. Um, but yes, in my mind, I do think that is malicious uh, to, to willfully and wantonly ignore someone. And, and you trick them, right? You're tricking them uh, by, not, by knowing what they said and knowing that you should respond or have a response um, but you, you trick them into thinking you haven't seen it by not opening the app, right? That's kind of shitty. I'd rather you see it and not respond and know that you've read it, know for a fact that you've read it, than have this short sort of like, you know, Schrodinger's DM, right? It, is the DM alive or is it not? Is the DM read or is it actually unread? Um, you know, and that's sort of what this kind this relationship, quote unquote relationship is through messaging over Instagram is it is like Schrodinger's DM where, you know, is it read or is it truly unread? And I don't know until she opens the box. And by the time she opens the box, I know for a fact it will, it is read. Uh, so I should just assume that if it's read every time she opens the box, every time she does read and respond, I should assume that she's read it anyway, regardless. Um, if it's read, then it's read now. It is a whole, this is a whole, you know, psychology thing of Schrodinger's cat and all that. Is it dead? Is it alive? Who knows? Um, but that's how I feel, and that's sort of what's been going on here. Um, and I, I that change, and, and I'm going to, you know, sort of step away from the Nick story to get into where, where I think this is right now. And this is me. This is my anxiety, right? This is anxiety talking. Uh, welcome to your tape, anxiety. The change in volume of conversation is a sign to me a doctor of social sciences right a a doctor of jurisprudence a doctor of law with a bachelor's of science degree in political science and a minor in sociology a doctor of law the change in volume in the conversation 
tells me that she is aware of my feelings. And maybe when she said, I, I love you, when she told me that she loved me, may have been the open and obvious, the notorious example that she does. She is aware of my feelings, right? Maybe she wouldn't have said it if she wasn't aware of my feelings. But to me, any sort of change in behavior tells me that that person knows something that they know they shouldn't know. You know what I mean? Um, like when people change their behavior, you know that they're withholding something, they're lying, or you know they're they're sort of that. They know something that they they also know that they shouldn't know at that time. So and maybe I should take the you know the I love you as like a hey like I know that you do love me and I I do want to say it just and I've talked about this in in the poison dream and I talked about this in to be frank but to me the change in volume tells me everything that I feel like I need to know but I could this is just anxiety talking right this is the bad Lance uh the, the bad Lance the bad Lance is the bad Lance uh talking. And that's that's part of the analytical, over-analytical, hyper-analytical part of my mind. The part of my mind that allowed me to pass the bar and become an attorney tells me everything I need to know. And that's where the doubt comes from. But I could also just be being too hard on myself, right? Because she's her own person, right? And, and at the end of the day, this is if she's listening to this or if her best friend is listening to this and they're like, I can't believe Lance is thinking this this way. I can't believe Lance is thinking this far. I know that this is the anxiety is unattractive, but it's also natural. And I guarantee you every person in any relationship ever has felt exactly as how I just expressed. They just don't say it probably because they don't know how to say it. But to that, I respond the other side of it, the the not the over or hyper analytical Lance, but the rational Lance, the other side, the rational Lance is saying she's her own person, right? She has her own life, and it's not like I'm an active part of it as much as I would love to be. It's not like I'm, I don't see her every day, or I don't see her every other day. I don't work with her. I don't, you know, we don't interact on, like, over the phone, or, like, we don't play video games together online. I, I don't talk to her every single day as much as I would love to. Um, maybe I should, right? Uh, maybe that's on me. But, you know, it, we don't work together. We don't live together. We don't interact together. We don't live in the same place. To the point where she has her own life and she has her own characters in her life. And, and, you know, I'm not as big of a part of that as I'd like to be or maybe as she would like me to be. And it's like that sort of that gray area and that conflict ridden area in in the in-between. Right. It's true. It's in the in-between where. One of us or both of us would like to be bigger parts in the other's life. But we also have our own lives that we're trying to navigate. And then we also consider how we would fit that other person into our own lives. How would I fit into her life? How would she fit into mine? And what pieces would we move around or maybe even remove completely, right? Like another man in her life or any other woman in mine, how would we remove those people or maybe even the distance, right? One of the pieces in my life is the fact that I live in Winchester. And one of the pieces in her life is that she lives in, you know, a non-disclosed area that I'm not going to mention. Um, and part of fitting her into my life and part of me fitting into her life would be removing that Winchester piece and replacing it with her piece or her removing her piece and replacing it with something else. I don't think I wouldn't ask her to come back here. Right. Um, 
And so that's like, well, it, it also takes effort and time and energy to rearrange those pieces that has to fit into your normal everyday schedule. And also, you know, you only have so much emotional energy in your battery. You almost, you only have so much left in the tank, right? So all of that to say that the rational part of me is like, hey, like, I get it, dude. Like, I'm not, I was going to say, I'm not her priority. I'm not even one of, I'm not one of her priorities at all, even though she is mine, because that's just who I am. That's how I love. Um, but I'm also insane, right? And I'm not one of her priorities, and it would take a lot of changing and a lot of moving pieces for me to become a priority and then become her main priority, right? So that's the rational part of me. It's like, hey, I shouldn't be thinking too far into this because she's her own person in her own life. She's the main character of her life. I'm the main character of my life. Now, I saw a TikTok today, right? When I say today, I mean the third. That made me think about this. That just came to my mind. That is the rational lance. And they say that people who are like, woe is me, like the people who operate on anxiety and the people who desire to be loved and accepted and, and heard and experienced out of low self-confidence, low self, self-esteem have the same issue that people have that are um, egocentric or the people that, you know, are sort of, I forget the term they use, probably like narcissistic or some shit. You know, the, the same people that think that they're hot shit have the same issue uh, as the people that think that they ain't shit, basically. And it, it's sort of like it boils down to confidence, right? And, and it's whether either way you're taking, you're putting yourself in the center of everyone else's life. Either you're saying I'm not enough and I need everyone around me to validate me and I need everyone around me to love me and I need everyone around me to express those things to me. I don't have enough self-confidence. I don't have enough self-esteem. So I need everyone in my life to put their attention and their efforts on me to make me bigger and better. Or you say, I'm hot shit. I'm everything to everyone. I am, you know, the greatest thing to ever happen to these people. I'm the funniest. I'm the coolest. I'm the best to hang out with. I want your attention. I want you to validate that I'm great. And I want you to validate that I make your life better. And I want you to validate me and my status in your life. Those are the same disease, right? Those are the two sides to the same coin or, you know, two wings of the same bird or whatever. And I thought about that because it's true. It's very true is, is either you need people to validate you because you feel like you're the greatest and deserve it, or you feel like you're the worst and you need it. And I am a lot of areas in my life. I have been, the I'm hot shit validate me for it. But in this circumstance with this young lady right now and all of this self-doubt and self-talk, I'm the other one. I'm the I'm worthless. I need you to validate me and make me feel loved and everything. And don't get me wrong, like there are times in your life where you need people to validate you. You need people to express and voice their love for you. You need people to tell you, people should tell you that they love you and you should tell people that you love them. Don't get me wrong. But it shouldn't be necessary to motivate you to keep you going, right? It, your whole self-esteem and self-confidence shouldn't be based on the validation and justification of others. And that bad side of me, the anxiety side of me, uh, comes out or is embodied in that sense that, hey, you know, I have all the self-doubt that she doesn't feel the same way that I do. It's not reciprocated and she has her own life, and I'm not a part of it, and I need to be a part of it, so I need her to validate me and make me a part of it. 
And that's been an issue of mine, I think, in the past with other relationships. Um, and so I guess, you know, where does this come together, right? Where where do the where does the anxiety side of me, uh, the hyper analytical side of me meet the rational side of me? And that's in the in the unknown, right? It, it's truly the only reason I feel this way or either way, whether I'm hyper analytical or sit down and, and, you know, talk to you all and be rational is the fact that I don't know where I stand with this person. And I can, I can make assumptions for days, right? But most people probably wouldn't assume that I'm in love with her either, right? You know, it, I guess I could understand if she assumed that I was in love with her, I, you know, because I feel like I've made it pretty fucking clear to her and to everyone around her and everyone around me that I'm in love with her. But the majority of people in my day-to-day life would have no idea that I was like madly in love with someone, right? They just wouldn't know. They would be like, well, Lance is going through his usual shit. And I guess I should feel the same way about her is if people wouldn't look at me and automatically know that I'm in love with this person, I can't look at her and automatically assume that she's not in love with me or that she is in love with me. Again, Schrodinger's cat, right? Um, And it all boils down to, to knowledge. And the young lady that was with Nick said that, you know, I need to find out either way because either she rejects me, she doesn't feel the same way and I can move on and that's tragic and I'll make a great podcast episode about it. I'll use her name, uh, or she does, and I said this in uh, Poison Dream, um, or she's willing. I, there's no way she feels the same way that I do. There's no way, right? There's literally no way that that I would be like, hey, this is how I feel about you. She's not going to pull a Lauren and say that she feels the same way that I do, right? She's not going to pull a Lauren, um, but it, it's either she's not interested or she is interested, right? It, Either she's not interested, she doesn't feel the same way that I do, or she's interested in attempting to feel the same way that I do, or she has, you know, a desire to feel the same way that I do. You know what I mean? It's one of those things. And I I shouldn't, you know, I've been put in situations where women have responded with sort of like an intermediate response, which is like, you know, thanks. Um, Maybe I'd be interested if the stars align. And then I go try to align all the stars for them when they never were really interested. They just liked the attention and or didn't know how to put me down easy. You know what I mean? I don't need you to put me down easy. I need you to take me out back like old Yeller and shoot me in the back of the head, right? Don't don't try to lay me down easy. I'm 27 years old and, you know, I've lost everything in my life, you know, all the time. I don't need to be put down easy. I need to be just taking out my misery to shoot me in the back of the fucking head, right? And... You know, sort of like, well, I love that. And and that's the thing, too, is why I appreciated these women that were with Nick listening to the story is because I've told stories like that to women. And then they loved that I felt so strongly about another woman that they tried to manipulate me and capture me and sort of, you know, milk me for that energy towards them. Right. They, They I've felt that way about women in the past where either them, the women specifically that I've told how I felt to, or friends of mine heard me talk about uh, you know, a woman in that way, and they were so astounded, astonished, that I was talking so highly of this other woman that they tried to manipulate me into feeling that way about them because they just they couldn't believe that a man could feel that way, and they loved the attention, and they used me to sort of feed or fill or charge their 
emotional satisfaction batteries while they search for someone they actually desired either physically or romantically or emotionally, whatever. You know what I mean? It's like these women were well aware that no man that wanted them felt the way that I did or no man that they wanted felt the way that I did about them, right? They, they were well aware that any man that they were interacting with, whether they wanted that man or that man wanted them, felt either reciprocated their feelings or felt as strongly as I did. So they would try to hold me down and milk me for all of that, which is a terrible verb, but it's true. They would try to, you know, sort of uh, use me for that emotional satisfaction of, hey, here's a man that's, you know, obsessed with me, even though I don't want him. And he fills all of these voids. You know, he'll be there to text me and respond when I need him to because he he loves me, even though I don't love him. While I can go, you know, have sex with whoever I want because I don't need the emotional side of it because I have Lance. Or I can go find a man that, you know, I always have Lance as a backup, but I can go find a man um, that wants me and maybe feels partly, you know, as, as strongly as Lance does. And I've had plenty of women do that. Plenty of women that I thought were my friends, who I thought were my best friends, or plenty of women that I thought I, I loved dearly that were just using me as sort of, I gave them the love that they couldn't get anywhere else while they, while they got everything else from other people. That's what the friend zone is, uh, just so everyone knows. Uh, if I had to put a label on the friend zone or a description on the friend zone, the friend zone is is being used and manipulated for your emotional, your romantic energy while they expel or expend their physical energy on other people, right? And of course, you know, I don't blame those women because I guess if I was a sick, twisted, you know, malicious fuck, I would do the same thing, but I'm not because I get my love, you know, like they say in the 70s, I get my loving on the run, baby. You know what I mean? Um, and, and so I get my loving on the run, dude. I, I carry it with me. And I don't need to take advantage of people to get that love because I just have it within me. Right? I love myself enough, surprisingly, which I, I never thought I'd ever say that. So let's take a moment to appreciate that. I love myself enough that I don't need to use, abuse, and manipulate other people to get the love that I need. Um, and so I would never do that thing. But I guess if I was a sick, twisted, malicious fuck, who had no self who truly had no self esteem truly had never experienced reciprocated love or any romantic love or any real love at all i guess maybe i could see taking advantage of someone like myself but i would never do such a thing the point being is i appreciated talking to these women and and them listening to me and them giving me their advice their two cents but they're right i need to i need to be honest i need to tell this person how i feel and I need to be willing to accept the consequences, whether, you know, whether she's not interested or not willing to be interested or whether she is interested, because I'm not going to accept that shit of, oh, like, I, I appreciate that you feel so strongly about me. I love that you feel so strongly about me. I love your love, but I don't love you. Right. And that's. I got to be honest with you, that's the Jen Dickey special right there. That's the Jen Dickey special is that I love your love but I don't love you. And I think that people get that confused and, and people, it, and don't get me wrong, I think she loves me now, now that she's not, now that she has to love me. Now that she's not getting the obsessed version of me, I think that she has to love me for who I am, which is how it should have been years ago. But there, you know, there are people who fall in love with the idea of you, right? Like Dave Matthews says, I fall so hard inside the idea of you. And people love your love more than they love you just because no one else can give them that style of love or that type of love or that magnitude of love. And I, 
I don't think that this person, I got to keep almost saying her name. I don't think that this young lady is like that. I don't think that she would ever say, hey, I love your love, but I don't love you. So I'm going to take advantage of you. And you're going to, you know, because then I would accept all that I could get, right? If, if that's all I can get from you, then you sort of got me in your bag. You sort of got me in in your shackles. And, and that's why people, especially me, fall into that shit. It's like, well, I want you so bad that I'll take you any way that I can get you. And if that means that you suck me dry, emotionally speaking, and take advantage of me and just take my life away from me, so be it, because at least I get to be near you. And I don't think that this person would ever do that to me especially with our interactions regarding Lauren and everything in the past. But I just have to be aware and, and learn those red flags and never accept that ever again. I, I can never go back to that place. Right. Um, you know, I, I never want to go back to that place ever again, like the red hot chili peppers. Um, but it's hard. It, it, it's hard. You know, it, it's hard to imagine being honest with this person. It's not hard to imagine being honest with this person. It's hard to imagine rejection. Rejection is scary. Um, but this all goes back to this girl's best friend, the one that I'm in love with. You know, we were communicating, we were talking, and I told her, I said, hey, I'm dealing with something right now that is kind of heavy, and I can't, I can't be the me that you want me to be. I can't give you the Lance that you want. I can't be there in that way. Because I'm dealing with this heavy burden. And she asked me, well, what's going on? I told her, I'm like, hey, you know, I am certainly, I am without a doubt with 100% legal certainty infatuated with this young lady. And I believe with some degree of certainty, I am in love with this young lady, which it's hard when you don't know someone's the minutia of someone to say that you're in love with them, right? Because I don't, like I said, I don't know how she takes her coffee. I don't know what she wears to bed. I don't know her, you know, her favorite song. Um, I don't know, you know, how to approach her when she's having a bad day. I don't know what her love language is. You know, I, I, I don't know her favorite bathroom in her house. You know what I mean? I don't know what shampoo she uses. I don't know the minutia of her life. So it's hard to say that you're in love with someone if you don't know the minutia of their of their life. But, you know, on the other end, maybe that's what being in love is with someone. I'm in love with you as in, you know, I'm in love with with all of you, regardless of what it is. And then love is knowing the minute true love is knowing the minutia. So maybe I am in love with this person, but because it's not a reciprocated partner style of love, I don't have all those details yet. Let me tell you, I'm dying. I'm yearning to know those details, right? There's nothing I want more in this world than to know everything about this woman, truly. But I told her best friend, I was like, hey, like, you know, I am infatuated with this woman. I'm I'm probably more likely than not certain, almost certainly in love with this woman. And I, you know, it, it's in this era of uncertainty. It, it's just, I don't know. It's just a lot that I'm working on right now. But I, I am, I am emotionally committed to this woman. I didn't say that it was her best friend, obviously, because that would be stupid as fuck to do. Uh, but I didn't say that, but this is what I meant. is like, hey, I, I am emotionally committed, like monogamously committed to the idea of this person, to the, my imagination, to the poison dream. I am emotionally committed to the poison dream. And she said, well, you, sh- you know, why haven't you told this person how you feel? And I said, well, it's fear, right? It's fear of rejection. 
obviously, because rejection sucks, and I've experienced more than my fair share. More, and I mean that, you know, that's just a colloquial phrase, but I mean that literally, and I need people to take it. I've experienced more than my fair share of rejection in my life from everything and everyone, which this person has too, because I rejected the person that I'm in love with, unfortunately. Um, right? So everyone knows who this is. And I'm just not ready to to have my heart broken at that level again, especially after I spent the last two, three years realizing that I am in love with this person. You know, I'm not just going into this like, hey, I like you. Do you like me? Check yes or no. And then she checks no, and I pout on the playground. I'm like two years deep into this emotional, you know, deep dive into the depths of my soul. You know, I've been on sabbatical. I have been on a an emotional, romantic sabbatical for the last two years, figuring out, doing research to determine that I'm in love with this woman. So I'm going in two years deep already. And if she rejects me, it may be just a regular rejection for her, which I doubt it would be because of who I am to her and who she is to me. I doubt that it would be that simple because nothing is that simple with me and nothing is that simple with her. Nothing is that simple with us. But it's not just, hey, this is a hard rejection because of our relationship and who we are. But it's also on top of the two years of sabbatical I've spent thinking about you and dreaming about you every night, you know? And I'm just not ready for that rejection, which, of course, I didn't say all this because it's be creepy as fuck. But there's also, you know, just the it's just fear. And it's also fear that I don't want to change or lose our friendship because she has remained friends with me over the last 10 years, even though we haven't seen each other, just like with Nick. Right. And she has been everything to me all the time, everywhere, every place, every day. You know what I mean? And we have such a special, unique friendship that we had in person in the seventh grade, in the eighth grade, and then also my junior year, my senior year, we had this special friendship that has lasted so long that I don't want to finally admit what I should have said 10 years ago, 10 years too late, and then fuck it all up. You know what I mean? Again, these are all Dave Matthews quotes, but if I had it all, I'd fuck it up. And that's, I, I told this person, I was like, you know, it's, it's the fear of rejection, but also fear of just fucking it up because I don't think it's reciprocated. Even though she said I love you, even though I've loved her for the last, you know, 10, 15 years and she's loved me for the last 10, 15 years. And we've had all of these special moments together. And and I think she was in love with me and I know that I'm currently in love with her. And even though, you know, all of these things. I just don't want to fuck it up, dude. And I don't think that it's reciprocated because I feel like I would know. But then again, I haven't known shit, right? If there's one thing I know, it's that I know nothing at all. And her best friend, who I was telling her, I was saying this to, said that I should tell her. I should tell the woman that I'm in love with that I'm in love with her. And that really struck me. All right, because everything strikes me. Apparently, I'm like a bowling pin. Everything strikes me. But that really struck me because I had to think to myself, is this just the classic cliche friend advice? Like any friend would tell any other friend. You should tell that person how you feel. Every guy is going to tell his buddy at the bar, go tell that girl how you feel. And every woman will tell her friends, whether it's a, a female friend or a male friend or a they friend or whatever. 
any friend would tell any other friend, you need to be open and honest about your feelings with yourself and open and honest with your feelings about other people because honesty is so important, right? Transparency is so important. And it's also, it's one thing, it's like, hey, you should be honest with other people, but also they know that holding things in eats people alive, right? And your friends don't want you to be eaten alive by the truths that you're withholding, right? You know, my hell is the closet that I'm stuck inside. I can't see the light. You know, that's what Dave said. My hell is a closet that I'm stuck inside and I can't see the light. And my heaven is a nice house in the sky. It's got central heating and I'm all right. But friends know that that withholding things and holding on to things and not speaking your truth will eat you alive. And so I think that friends tell you to be honest, not because they think it's going to be successful or fruitful, but they tell you to be honest because it's going to be freeing for you. And they care about your mental and emotional health more than your physical well-being and your physical lust. You know what I mean? So I was like, okay, well, is this just this person, this woman's best friend who has been one of my best friends for the longest time, is this her just being the best friend to me? Or does she know that the woman that I was talking about is her best friend and she wants me to tell her, which would lead me to assume that it would be fruitful, right? Because I don't think she would lead me to failure. She wouldn't, you know, it's one thing to lead a horse to water and you can't make them drink. It's another thing to lead a horse to slaughter and turn them into Elmer's glue. You know what I mean? I don't think that she would lead me to slaughter and have me turn into a bottle of paste for some kindergartner to eat. You know what I mean? I think she would lead me to water and ask ask me to drink. And so I think like, you know, was she saying this? Does she know that the woman I'm talking about is her best friend and that her best friend feels the same way that I do or at least is willing ready, willing, and able to attempt to potentially feel the same way that I do and that she's waiting on me to say something and so that's why she's telling me to be honest or is it just she's being a good friend and, and saying that I should get this shit off my chest, right? And that it sort of ate away at me and, and that's sort of where the conversation led and I was like, hey, I'll tell this person eventually and she was like, you really, the emphasis on me telling this woman that I'm in love with her was was real. The emphasis that like, hey, you really need to be honest with this person and tell them that you love them was real, which late. Uh, leads me to believe that she knows who it is. And if this person, if my friend, this woman's best friend, knows who I'm talking about, there's no doubt in my mind that the woman that I'm in love with knows knows the shit. There's no doubt in my mind. So that's where the poison dream is right now, is I'm sort of, I'm being a pussy about it, right? Um, where I need to be honest with my feelings. I need to be honest with myself, and I need to you know, admit that I'm in love with this person and, and just face the consequences. I need to face the the judge, jury, and executioner and accept my punishment and, and take my punishment. But anyway, so back to the table. So we share these stories and that's pretty much where the night ends is us talking about this woman that I'm in love with for hours and about the podcast and about everything else in my life. And um, finally, we split up. We go our separate ways. It's probably like 930. And I go outside and I try to say goodbye to a intoxicated Nick and he is a little bit out of his mind. That's okay. Right. And we say goodbye about 20, 25 times, maybe even 36 times. Who knows how many times we say goodbye. I'm going to say 36 times. We say goodbye about 36 times and tell each other that we love each other and, and give each other, you know, deep hug. I hug, I'm a hugger, right? Everyone who knows me knows I'm a hugger and it hurts me that some of my friends aren't. And I think that everyone is a hugger just for the right people at the right time, right? Like, obviously, if you're married or engaged, 
or in a long-term relationship, you're, you may not be a, a hugger hugger, but you will hug your spouse, right? Like everyone will hug their spouse or their significant other more than they'll hug their friends. I get that. But I'm a hugger for everyone, right? I, I just love hugs. I love embraces. I think that there's a soul to soul, heart to heart contact with other people that you share in a warm embrace, right? Our hearts are touching. Uh, so we share some nice embraces and and we thank each other for our patronage. <laughs> thank you for being a friend. You know, that sort of thing. We we thank each other for being friends and and we split up and we say that we'll see each other soon. And, and that's sort of how the night went, right? So I'm at about an hour and six minutes on this part, plus the first half, which I'm recording separately. And I guess I just want to, you know, sort of wrap this up, get to a conclusion, right? I, and I usually don't wrap things up, but you know what I mean? And the conclusion is that I do want to thank Nick for being a friend for so long, right? I, I know that I lost a lot of friends after high school into college and even after college. Because I was never, I never stood down, right? When people say stand down, I, I never, I never stand down. I never put my arms down. You know, it's, it's like that scene in Black Panther, which I don't know if Ivy's going to listen to this one. Like she used to listen to the old ones, but one of my favorite, my favorite line in Black Panther is when, I can't think of what his character's name is. Um, it, it's Daniel Kaluuya. Did I say that right? Daniel Kaluuya uh, from Get Out. And he is, um, Okoye's husband, right? And he's the he leads the the tribe that takes care of the rhinoceros, rhinoceroses, rhinoceri, rhinoceros. He takes care of the rhinos, right? And they're in that final conflict where he has supported the coup d'état and supports Eric Killmonger as the rightful king of Wakanda, and then you know the other people are are loyal, obviously, to uh, T'Challa, right? To Chadwick Boseman. And they're having this conflict, and he said, lay down your weapon. You know, the way he says that, lay down your weapon. Um, I always think about that. He said, lay down your weapon. And that's sort of like, you know, I never did that, right? I was a Koye uh, in that, which I've never compared myself to a Koye because we don't look alike. But I, I was a Koye in that I would never lay down my arms. I would never stand down in defense of what I knew was right, not what I felt was right or not what I thought was right. What I knew was right. I would never stand down. And I lost a lot of friends for for taking staunch, heavy, hard defenses of what I know to be right. And I lost a lot of friends for that, for picking sides, right? Because people don't like to pick sides. But then years later, it turns out they would they would flip sides and and switch to my side and never apologize for chastising me for taking that side initially, you know, five, six years prior. And that always hurt me that it's like people, their actions would would admit that, that I was right, right? Their actions would admit that I was correct five, six years in the past, but they would never, you know, confront me and actually verbally apologize to me for villainizing me for taking the side that they inevitably chose. They don't want to admit that they were wrong and they don't want to admit that I was right and they don't want to admit that I was first, right? Because I'm not one to look like I like I would ever be first for anything. But Nick always stood by me, right? Nick always had my back. And even, you know, we hadn't seen each other in 10 years. 
But since we graduated from high school in you know June of 2013, he's had my back ever since, even when I wasn't there to have his. And that speaks volumes to his character, right? And Nick, I, I say this to a lot of people, and I mean it every time I say it. You're a good person. You know, you're a good person. And I thank you for being a good person to me and respecting me. That's all I've really ever asked for is respect. And for some reason, that's hard to get sometimes. But you've always respected me. You may not have always liked me. You may not have always loved me, even though I know that we would say that we would. But you've always respected me. And that means more, truly. So thank you. So where are we? Where are we going? Yada, yada, yada. You know, the George Costanza, yada, yada, yada. You don't yada, yada, yada sex, you know. Um, upcoming episodes are going to be, obviously, the beach story, all that stuff. I've talked about it. The next episode should be a an episode with a co-host, my friend Becca. And um, we're going to talk about some formative times in my life. I'm probably going to talk about the poison dream and that young lady again. Um, it's the similarities between Becca and that young lady. Um, it should be a good episode. I'm excited to reconnect with another good friend, another good person. Right? I'm I'm excited to reconnect. I don't know. It's weird going back to that era, that time in my life with all these people, but it, it feels good. Um, you know, our love is so right, as Dave says. So I'm excited to talk to Becca, to see Becca, to you know get everything together. Um. And, you know, hopefully I'll, I'll be honest with this woman that I'm in love with and tell her how I feel. Hopefully uh, she feels the same way and hopefully it works out. But if not, you know, that's I don't even want to think if not, because I, I want it to work so bad. It's the only thing I can picture in my mind is just how much I love this woman and how much I want this woman. I want her more than I, I want, you know, breath in my lungs. I, I just want I want to just swim in her. You know what I mean? Uh, so. That's it for me. Uh, again, I love you all very much. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, I, I love you dearly. My recommendation is Rhett McLaughlin uh, from Rhett and Link from Good Mythical Morning. Rhett has a new album out called Human Overboard. It's about his spiritual deconstruction, his leaving of the Christian evangelical church, his sort of relationship or lack thereof with God and with Christians and how that's affected himself and his family. Uh, it's a it's a country album, but it's a good country. And I recommend just listening to his music about faith and about himself and, and how he loves himself and how he loves the universe. So it's called Human Overboard. It's by uh, Rhett McLaughlin from Rhett and Link. That's my recommendation. And I just, I love y'all dearly so much. And uh, this has been another humble episode of Late Nights with Lance. Peace. I'm out of here.